If you're a narcissist, the person you'd love to spend more time with is you, right? Uh, but for most of us, it's not uh, spending more time alone, but it's spending time with some other people. I've been to a series of reunions over the last several years, and every time I go to one of those reunions, I find people, they're not, they've changed a lot more than I have in their appearance, but I, I, I find people that when we start to connect again, we bring back some of these memories, some of these experiences, some of the joys we had in our relationship from the past. That's why there's always some people that we long to spend more time with. Let me ask, do you also have some people that you'd rather go away? Uh, Listen to this. I I, I spent a whole summer at camp where the kids loved this song. Uh, Old Mr. Johnson, he had troubles of his own. He had a big yellow cat that wouldn't leave home. He tried and he tried to give that cat away, but the cat came back the very next day. Yeah, the cat came back the very next day. The cat came back. You know, they thought he was a goner. The cat came back. He just wouldn't stay away. Do you have a big yellow cat who happens to be a person or a group of people? Have you been at a boring dinner party where there's some people that can only talk about themselves and they go on and they go on thinking that they're so interesting? Or, or, or maybe you've been in a discussion where everybody has the opposite view of yours and you say, I just wish they'd all go away. Uh, or some of you have had your children move home. Just for a while, Mom. Just for a while, Dad. And the while turns out to go on indefinitely. You see, we all have big yellow cats. Um, there was a, a general at Gettysburg who also had a big yellow cat. Let me tell you the story of uh, General John Bell Hood. Uh, it was the Battle of Gettysburg, July 1st to the 3rd in 1863. General Lee for the Confederacy, General Meade for the Union. Uh, they gathered together well over 200,000 troops. General Lee, uh, to that time, had won every battle. And so they expected that no matter what battle they were in, they would find a way to win. And the Army of the Potomac had now invaded Pennsylvania. There had been no battles there before. And if he won, he would stay in the north, move on to Harrisburg or even Philadelphia, and then he'd be able to set the terms for peace. And among his generals was John Bell Hood, who was given the assignment to flank the Union forces from the south. And in the south were these famous battle, uh, battlegrounds, the Peach Orchard, the Wheat Field, Plum Creek, Devil's Den, and that small hill known as Little Round Top. General Hood probed and attacked all day long, and the final assault came late in the afternoon. The Confederacy was used to the Union Army putting up somewhat of a fight until they realized uh, that the enemy, the uh, Confederacy troops, were still advancing. And then they would either surrender or retreat or just sort of fade away, often deserting. Well, at this battle, the Union stayed put. Many of them knew that this was the battle that would determine the rest of the war. So they stayed put. And when the forces of Little Round Top, Little Round Top ran out of ammunition, their, their commander uh, realized that he couldn't retreat. He had to do something. So he said, fix bayonets. He told all of his men to fix their bayonets because they didn't have any shot left. And they charged down the hill. 
And as they charged down the hill, uh, they had uh, several hundred more captives than they had than they, they had done before. They won that battle because they were not allowed to be flanked. Well, afterwards, General John Bell Hood is appearing before General Lee, and he's apologizing. He takes he takes full responsibility for the loss of the battle that day, and as it turns out, the loss of the entire battle. And as he's explaining, General Lee tries to excuse him, and he, he says, look, the battle was not well organized. It began too late in the day. It wasn't well coordinated. And then General Hood reportedly said with surprise, like a southern gentleman, General Lee, they just wouldn't leave. As if it was expected. We're here. They don't go. We are now in a series designed to answer the question, why church? Why does the church exist? What should we, what should our expectations be of the church? And what do we get out of it? What do we give into it? If you're going to invest your time, not just on a Sunday morning, but, but your efforts and your treasure and, and your investment into uh, uh, dealing with other people, you ought to have answered, why church? If you're going to teach children or commit to a small group, or be part of one of our ministries, you, you probably should have answered that question. We have been sharing many answers, and this week and next week we have two more. Why does the church exist? What is it here for? And like the Union soldiers who would not leave, that big yellow cat, the church of Jesus Christ worships a founder who won't go away. He's here to stay. He is risen, he is ascended, but his presence is here to stay. And so people have been joining in this movement following Jesus of Nazareth, and they're doing it by free will, not by force, not by threats, uh, not just because of their parents being Christians, but occasionally, I mean, eventually they each have to make a decision on their own. And it's not just the numbers of people that are increasing. Uh, estimates are about 180,000 a month are becoming Christians around the world. But it's... Uh, not just the numbers or the breadth, but also the depth of the impact. One author stated it this way. On the day after Jesus' death, it looked like whatever small mark he left on the world would rapidly disappear. Instead, his impact on human history has been unparalleled. You see, this Jesus of Nazareth, risen, has a deep impact And he wants us to know that he has a reason for that. There's an intent for his impact, not just on the world, but for each one of us. Uh, Because Jesus daily demonstrated God's love for the marginalized in in, in the Jewish society, the impact of Jesus deeply continues to influence everything involved in the human race. Unlike the materialistic worldview or the humanistic view, worldview, which puts either science at the center or people at the center. Followers of Jesus believe that all people matter. They're not at the center. That's God's value given to us. That all people matter to God and therefore they matter to us. So in our areas of medicine, commerce, law, education, human rights, we, we consider these uh, universal principles today, but they were not in Jesus' day. Jesus brought them to us. They have become part of us due to his deep impact on Western culture. And where his impact recedes, such as in Western Europe, so do these values. 
So at the end of John's gospel, we get a clue as to why followers of Jesus continue to increase in number and do it by choice, but also how the impact of Jesus continues to deepen throughout society. The issue is that through faith in the resurrected Jesus, we find life in his name. Let me read from John chapter 20. And I'm reading verses 30 and 31. This is like a summary at the end of the gospel. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Faith in the resurrected Christ results in life in his name. That life is not the physical life that we get from our parents. We all share that if we're breathing today. But it's a spiritual life in a relationship with our creator. It is a life in harmony with his design for humanity. It is a life that he, as he means it to be. And a life that continues throughout all of eternity. Funny though, isn't it? How, though this is presented to us, we seem to be mired and sometimes stuck in, in alternatives and substitutes for the life that God wants us to have. Where John says, and you might have life in his name, we find life in all sorts of different ways in different areas. We try to find a substitute by deadening our, our emotional pain in life instead of finding that there's a living God helping us to work through it. We consume ourselves with a party life instead of a purposeful life. We will wait until we can get the next new thing that we think, now I will truly be happy if I get this, this new toy. But then we realize it takes maintenance and we've got to use it, otherwise we've wasted it. And so we become chained to its maintenance and to its use. The, the idea here is that God has created us in such a way that no stuff will permanently satisfy us. Nothing material will 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 keep us happy for the rest of our lives. You see, material stuff does not fulfill a spiritual being. Spiritual stuff fulfills a spiritual being. So our focus needs to be on an anchor or something or someone that will last for our life, make it of great purpose, and also will last for eternity. When we find it, we're often caught by surprise. My mother told me about it. I went to Sunday school. They told me about it. I've been to a few places and they've told me about it. Why did it take me 30 years to believe it's true? Why did it take me 17 or 18? Why am I still working on it? Because it becomes more and more true every year. That's the anchor that we have. The resurrection of Jesus is what lets us know that there is life beyond this life. And there is a life as God has designed it to be. And that we can be living now. And sometimes not only are we surprised, but the people who were working with Jesus, who were walking with Jesus, they were more surprised than maybe we are today. Uh, Jesus had told those who were following him, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. And when he does, they're stunned. 
I guess they heard him, but they never listened. Let me share, you know, there's three people that are intimately and, and, and uniquely, and they're the first responders, you might say, to the resurrection of Jesus. One is Mary Magdalene, another is John the disciple, another is Peter. And this is what it says in that same chapter, but at the beginning of it. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, we believe is John, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. And we, meaning she was not alone, she were other women with her, and we don't know where they, they have put him. I don't know who they are, but I have some guesses. She's saying, well, who would have taken him? Uh, she, she gets to the tomb. She sees that it's open, not closed and sealed, as she saw it was done on that Friday night. So it's not, it's not sealed, it's not closed. And then she, she has to come to a conclusion. How did it get open? They did it. Well, she is so confused, she doesn't mention who they are. My guess is she was thinking they would be the religious leaders, that they would be the ones who wanted to make sure that Jesus didn't fulfill his promise, so they took the body. But she comes and she tells Peter and John, and nobody quite knows who they are. And Mary is one who is very confused about the resurrection. But she's not the only one. Here are two men who have lived intimately and, 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 and for a period of at least one year, probably three, with Jesus, and, and they have to respond too. So it says this, after Mary tells them, uh, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but you know Peter was probably a little heavy and it took him longer. So John was probably limber and maybe did cross country in high school. I don't know, but he got there first. So it says, uh, both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. So there's one who's confused, and then there's one who observes. This is John. He bends over, he, he looks, and, and he doesn't see a body. There's no body there. Now, if there was a body there, he might have still stayed outside because Jews didn't have NCIS uh, where we just fall in love with dead bodies, right? I mean, we just can't wait to see that show every Thursday night. And, 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 and they're, they're fixated on this dead person on a slab, right? And you see all the cuts and all the wounds. And, and I can't watch it because I usually will faint, but, but, but others like it. We're fixated. For a Jew, you don't touch dead bodies. So he looks in, but he can't see the body. The body is gone. He verifies that by his observation. But observing is not the same as committing. Observing is not the same as verifying. So Peter comes next. And it says in verses 6 and 7, Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb and saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around his head. Peter catches up, runs right in, while John waits outside a little longer. 
Now, here is what it says in verse 8. This is, this is, this is important. And it's verified because John wrote this. Okay? Uh, finally, the other disciple who had reached the... Two, oh, sorry. End of verse 7. Um, the cloth was folded up by itself, separated from the linen. So, in other words, here's the slab. On one end are the strips of cloth that wrap the body of Jesus. And on the other end is, is the head covering and, and torso covering. And, and that is folded up. Would you just think about that for a minute? It's folded up. Let's say that you decide today that you want to watch the NCAA basketball finals in style. So you go down to Best Buy. And at Best Buy, you buy the, the huge 80-inch screen. And, and you buy uh, not just the screen, but you buy the sound system and the mounting system so that come tomorrow night, you are ready. I mean, your screen is going to make those seven-foot people look small. Well... You realize, oh, it's late. I get to go to work tomorrow, but I'll get off early. But instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take each, you know, the sound system, the amplifier, the mounting system, and the TV. I'll just leave them in the box right where I'm going to mount them. So you do that, and you go to sleep. But while you're asleep, some robbers come. And the robbers come in, and they very neatly take everything out of the box, pick each item up out of the box and walk out and behind it they leave a thank you note. And the thank you note says, we're going to enjoy tomorrow night's game so much. Thank you. Now, you should rightfully be asking this question. What thieves, if they're in a hurry and don't want to be caught, take things out of the box and leave the box? Stupid thieves. No thief. No thief that's not in jail. What body snatcher folds claws of a dead person? Stupid body snatcher or no body snatcher? This is what we have to live with because, you see, there is a logic in everything that's reported about the resurrection of Jesus. Even though nobody has seen him to this point, for over 2,000 years, skeptics have concluded that the body was stolen. But if Jesus' body was stolen, then those who do not want to believe should have presented the body right away. You're wrong. He didn't rise. We have him right here. Now think of this. If the disciples stole the body, why did Peter and John run to the tomb to see that he was missing? And why afterwards would they give their life for something that they knew was an outright fib, a lie, something that they would be willing to die for that they knew had no truth in it? You see, the logic behind it says keeps pointing to this. Something was done that logic doesn't uh, allow, that Jesus Christ was written, and the physical evidence points now to the Uh, you might say, to the personal resurrection experiences. The first is Mary. She had run back after them. Uh, Peter and John had probably left, and she was there alone, and she's the first one to see the risen Christ. So 
So she goes and she tells them, now I've seen the Lord. I don't care who they are. I've seen him. The next ones would be two men who are walking on a road. And they come back and say, we have seen the Lord. And then that night, less than 18 hours later, uh, there are 10 disciples gathered in a room and they see him. Even though that was the last thing they expected. You see, we are left with a timeless, uh, you might say, set of convictions here. The first conviction is this. Christ is risen. Just as he said he would be, but everybody seemed to not, uh, uh, not just not recognize it. It didn't register with them. The resurrection after three days of death does not happen very often. In fact, you might say, I've never heard of it happening at all, except for Jesus. But because he is risen, then we have to consider a supernatural explanation because nothing else seems to fit. A supernatural expression of an all-powerful God who has made a promise that he has raised Jesus and he's made a promise that he will raise all of those who trust in Christ at the final resurrection. That's a timeless conviction. You're here today. You're at least considering it if you haven't bought into it. Or else you've just tuned me off, which I've heard people do that too. But the second conviction is, what do I do about it? What should I be up to? See, the resurrection has been declared since the risen Christ made himself visible. Christ is risen. But now we treat him like God in the ways that God deserves. We want to honor him in many ways. How do we honor him? I want to say this. There's some things that you can do on your own to honor God in your lives. And I would encourage you to do that. We, have, we do not do this here very often, but I'm providing a gentle nudge for you today. Uh, in the seats where you're sitting, there is what we call a commitment card or a conviction card or whatever you want to call it. It's what, is, what would be the next step for you? And as you look at that, there, there are several options that I'll read through with you. But as you look at that and think about that, are you saying that you want to honor God in your life? And one of those things is to begin to move ahead. Begin to solidify your faith. Uh, find the right friendships in your life. And, and more than that, get involved in the right activities in your life. The things that will make your faith grow and help others grow. So it's a commitment card, and you can make a commitment just between God and yourself. And you might look at me today and say, Jim, I know you. You're just a little pushy today, aren't you? And the answer is no, I'm not pushy, I'm nudgy. Just nudgy, okay? There's a, there's a difference. I'm nudgy. The, the idea is not to make you do something you don't want to do, but maybe something that you're saying, if I declare that I'm going to move ahead and I say it in a, in a tangible way, that, um, hmm, who knows? Maybe this time I'll do it. Here's our promise to you. You look at that card, I'll walk you through it in just a bit. But you look at that card and say, yes, that's for me. One of these I, I, I really am interested in doing because I believe Christ has risen. I believe the, the cross means my sins are forgiven. I believe the empty tomb means I'm going to rise with him through faith in him. Then what do I do? What do I begin to do? Maybe you're at that point in the top of the first box that you're ready to accept Jesus. In other words, you place your faith in him and in nobody else for forgiveness and eternal life. 
then you check that box. Let us know who you are and would love to be in contact with you. Maybe you're saying, I would like to become a part of a, of a regular gathering of Christians so I can grow in my faith with other Christians. We, here we call those growth groups, so we have Bible studies and other things. But I want to grow in my faith with other Christians. Third, I commit to take the next step of faith, maybe individually. You just don't own a Bible, you use it. I'm not talking about coffee table Bible. I'm talking about reading it, opening it, praying, and giving God your true request, letting go of the past and trusting God. Or maybe you say, I'm stuck in my faith and I want to get unstuck. I, I, I want to get involved in serving God. I, I want, you know, I, I'm a person of activity. I'm a person of motion. I, I, I need energy and, and I love to expend it. And that's how I share my faith. Then get involved in ministries or serving. And maybe you're, you're saying at this point, I've never done it before. Uh, I've come to faith in Christ and I realize that one of the commands he gives us is when you come to faith, be baptized in him. And in about a month, we're going to have a baptism right here. Some of you get to test it out. I'll let you even go in first. Just to make sure the electricity... No. Uh, But, you know, we'll we'll do it together. And I promise that this time the water will be at least room temperature. If some of you were at the old church, there were times we had to put in horse trough heaters to break the ice on the top. So that was a commitment, wasn't it, for those of you who remember that? Oh, that water was cold, and I had to be there the whole time. But maybe you're ready to be baptized. It is a public display of your inner faith, and we would love to have you do that. Or maybe there's something else, just something personal, something just about you, something that God is saying right now to you. And I'm not only asking you to Take the card, check the card, fill out the card. I'm asking you to drop the card in one of these plates up front. Um, We're not taking names. And we're not remembering who's didn't come up. We don't do that here. This is come as you are. And you may not be ready for that. But I want to say, gently nudging you to action to making a personal commitment does something that just saying in your heart, it's sort of like New Year's resolutions, does something in your heart that helps you keep going. Pushing? No. Nudgy. And I pray that you would be nudged. Now I just want to give you some, some reflection time. There's the card. You said, oh, couldn't do it, didn't bring a pen. Hey, when the time comes, this pen's up front, okay? I think of everything. But, but why not? Why not believe that God has you here today for a reason? And it, part of the reason is taking you further in following Jesus. Let's now be quiet before him. You just give it some thought. Then after a while, there'll be a time you wish, just to come and leave it in that plate. Father, as we now consider just what it is that you might be calling us to do, we realize that uh, five boxes don't fit everybody. 
that your spirit is far more expansive. But we also realize that you might have brought people here today for a reason, for a purpose. And one of those purposes might be that they hear you in a way never heard before or hear you louder than ever before. Father, I pray for those considering placing their trust in you. What a marvelous Easter this would be. I pray for those who are saying, it's, I, I want to I move ahead. I've just taken too much time off. I've just been too indifferent. You're speaking. You're speaking. Speak till we have to write it down and drop it in. In Jesus' name, amen.